This is your coffee break. Hey friends, I'm back again this week, and I have with me a developmental editor and writing coach named Megan Hannum, and I'm so excited to welcome her to the show. Megan, hello. Hello. Um, so Megan, you work for uh, Why Not Edit, which is spelled W-H-Y-N-O-T-T, Edit. Tell me a little bit about what you do there. Yeah, so Why Not Edit is actually my personal company. I am the one woman behind the show. And uh, like you said, I'm a developmental editor and writing coach. And so my mission is to help underrepresented voices in publishing tell the best version of their stories so that they can't not be published. Awesome. I love that. What moved you to do that? Uh, You know, I've always been a reader my whole life. Uh, My dad has this really funny story about telling me to put down the book and go watch TV with my brother. (laughs) And so... When I was, I graduated from college thinking that I wanted to be a press secretary actually and work in politics Mm. and just immediately was disenchanted with all of that (laughs) and went back to, you know, what did I love to do? And it was reading and stories and writing. I used to take the computer paper out of my parents' printer and create little books of my own. And so I started exploring the editorial side of the publishing industry and just really fell in love with it. And because I do also do so much reading and a bit of my own writing, the developmental editing just came so naturally. It really just feels like it's what my brain was wired for. What a great feeling to have that as your career, you know, to know that you were made to do this thing. Yes, it is. I thank my lucky stars every day. Can you tell us a little bit about what developmental editing is and why it's important? I absolutely can. Uh, So developmental editing works with the big picture elements of your story. So things like plot, theme, characters. If you're working in nonfiction, a developmental editor will help you with uh, organization and getting across your message with your readers. And it comes in two basic forms. So there's sort of two different approaches you can take to working with a developmental editor. You can either come to them with your idea before you've even started anything and they will help you to develop the idea into a full-blown either outline for a novel or outline for a nonfiction book. Um, So they'll help you like flesh out the details and get started. Or you can come to a developmental editor after you've written a draft or two and they will help you to, they will review your manuscript and identify the areas of strengths and weaknesses to help you really get in depth through the revision process Mm -hmm. and churn out the best version of your story that you can. And that's primarily how I work with authors is the second version. So I get their full manuscripts and I go through them. Oh my gosh, that must be fascinating. It's great. I get paid (laughs) to read for a living, so (laughs) I love it. Oh my gosh. Um, And then sort of why that's important is because agents and publishers or readers, if you're going to go the self-publishing route, they want fully developed stories. So um, it's not all that common these days for a publishing house to send uh, especially new authors to see a developmental editor. So seeing one before you submit really gives you the best chance of success in that realm. So you you talked about seeing strengths and weaknesses. What are some of the most common strengths and weaknesses that you see in the manuscripts you review? 
Oh, that's an interesting question. I feel like it varies pretty widely. I mean, for like I said, for the most part, I focus on things like plot and theme and characters. So a lot of the times I'll get a manuscript and maybe the characters are fantastic, but the plot side of things is a little unorganized and wonky. And so I'll have to focus my attention mm. on that. And then, you know, I'll get the exact opposite in the next manuscript where the plot is super solid, but the characters need just a little more oomph. And then, so you work with them. Do you send like notes to them and say, Hey, on page, whatever, or do you kind of go through and like structurally move things around or do you rewrite or what, to what extent then do you do editing? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, just to give you like an, like an outline of my process. Yeah. I do, um, I do two full read throughs of every manuscript that I get. So the initial read through, I'm giving notes on my experience as a first time reader of the story as it exists. And I'm also making note of any questions that are coming up for me as I'm going along. So, you know, will this get resolved? This needs some more explaining if it doesn't happen later on. And then the second read through is for the deep critique. So that's Mm. where I notice whether or not the questions I had got answered. (laughs) And I also will make suggestions for changes that I think would strengthen areas. So I won't go in and rewrite anyone's story because I feel like I would be taken aback if anyone did that to my work. (laughs) True. But I will absolutely leave like a really long comment, which also will end up, so the final step of the process, sort of skipping around, sorry. uh, The final step of the process is a developmental memo. Mm -hmm. So I, in addition to my inline comments that I make, I give a very thorough sort of like brain dump of (laughs) my thoughts of the story. And so that's where I will outline and like go into detail about, you know, I think maybe if this character had this experience earlier in the novel, that would make this moment later on a little more impactful. But then I absolutely make it a point to get face to face with the writers I work with and make sure that that's a suggestion that feels sustainable that feels like something that they want to incorporate into their story and if they have resistance to any of my feedback I help to work with them to find the change that they like you know as a writer myself and I also do editing for nonfiction, but as a fiction writer you know that's so deeply personal do you see a lot of resistance from your writers or is there sort of a a spectrum you know so far knock on wood I've had (laughs) overwhelmingly positive feedback to my suggestions I sort of pride myself on being able to have a good understanding of the writer's intentions before I begin. So that's another part of the process is I like to talk to them before Mm -hmm. I start working on their story to like really find out their goals for the, for the work, like beyond publishing, Mm -hmm. like what did you want this to say to people? What do you want people to feel while they're reading this? So that while I'm in there, I can make sure that they are hitting their mark as opposed to a mark that I've decided Uh is one that they should hit. Because, I mean, like you said, fiction is a deeply personal thing. And so I don't ever want to feel like I'm, I don't ever want to make writers feel like I'm forcing something on them that doesn't feel authentic. Like I said, thus far, I haven't actually encountered anyone who has said to me, no, that doesn't feel right. I don't think you understand. But if I ever did, I have the ability (laughs) to then have a conversation with them about, okay, so then what 
Hmm. was your intention with this scene or this character or this plot device? Like, what were you trying to do there? And how can we help you do it? And I, I hope that record continues. I hope that your feedback continues to be overwhelmingly positive. What a what a great feeling and what great affirmation of what you're doing. Yeah, I actually had a client tell me that I had a supernatural ability to find what was missing. And I was like, whoa, wow, that is <laughs> a high compliment. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So do you have a favorite type or do you have a type at all of manuscript that you prefer, like something that you do or you have a specialty in, or do you just kind of take anything that comes your way? The only sort of preset restrictions I've placed on the work that I like to get in on is the underrepresented voices portion of my mission statement. So that's women, people of color, members of the LGBTQ community, Mm -hmm. immigrants, you know, any of the voices that don't make up the mainstream narrative um, and what we see most often coming out of publishing houses. But aside from that, as far as genre goes, I read basically everything. <laughs> so I will also take on basically anything. I will put an asterisk on there and say that like super specific genres, like high fantasy, some sci-fi, if you're like really heavy on the sci you will want to find someone who says that they do specialize in those genres because there are going to be particulars that you want your editor to be familiar with. And those are two places that I'm not super familiar with. But um, literary fiction I've had experience with, and it was awesome. I worked on a paranormal urban fantasy. I've worked on a romance novel. I'm sort of a jack of most trades. (laughs) That's awesome. You mentioned a mission statement. And that's always something that fascinates me about writers and I guess now editors. Tell me a little bit about how you developed your mission statement. So my Myers-Briggs personality type indicator is INFJ. And that's the I think it's the advocate. Yes. Um, And so I have a very strong drive to save the world. (laughs) And So that's why I thought I wanted to go into politics because I was going to save the world. And so actually there was a lot of self-doubt when I started transitioning back toward my passion, which was writing and publishing, because it didn't feel important enough. And so I did a lot of self-exploring in that area to like really pinpoint what I felt like I could accomplish working in this field. And that's when I came to the decision to specifically help underrepresented voices because stories absolutely shape the world that we're living in. They're a product of it, but they also reflect it. And so we have to see the world that we want to be living in, in the stories we're reading. And that means hearing from every voice out there, especially the ones that get silenced more often than not. And so that's sort of the genesis of my, my mission statement for why not edit. How do people find you? Do people who are underrepresented, do they generally know like, hey, I'm an unrepresented person and I know I can go to you? Or how does that work? As far as like knowing where you can turn, that's why I make sure to put that into everything I say. So it's, it's on all my social media profiles. It's all over my website. Like, if this is you, you are who I'm here for. And so I think that that sort of opens the door for making them feel safe about approaching me. Uh, As far as finding a developmental editor, I actually sort of 
struggle, one of my number one challenges as far as marketing my services is educating Mm. writers about what developmental editing is and why they should be interested in it. Because I think at this point, everyone knows about copy editors and copy editing. And that's important too. But especially if you're going the traditional route, you're going to see a copy editor eventually, like the (laughs) publishing house is going to take care of that. Seeing one before then doesn't makes so much sense, but a developmental editor before going toward whichever publishing route you want to pursue really ups your chances of finding the success that you're looking for. So I work in marketing and technology and and all sorts of things, and I constantly have to keep up to date on what the Google algorithm is doing and what these other trends are. How do you keep up on what's working in publishing? Oh, that is a great question. Um, I am on a number of newsletters. I follow publishing houses on social media to sort of see what they're up to. But also there are industry publications that I think are actually really great for writers to get a hold of if they can. Like Publishers Weekly is a really great one, well-known one. Uh, Jane Friedman actually puts out a newsletter where she aggregates all the news that she can about the publishing industry that is ACEs, because she also acknowledges that it is important for writers to understand the changes that are happening because self-publishing and hybrid publishing and all of these things are disrupting Mm -hmm. even the traditional publishing model. And so it's important to understand like, okay, I'm going to go to a traditional publisher, but maybe they're going to offer me an ebook deal, which is a different thing that hasn't existed. So that's what does that mean? So yeah, I think it is really important to keep on top of that kind of thing. And then also, if you are going after a specific publisher, you want to know whether or not they've published stories like yours in the past to know how good your chances are. And then also to know what kind of caliber you're shooting for, Mm. as far as like, the quality of your writing and your story. So yeah, Industry research is not a small part of the process. No, I bet not. And you also, um, you mentioned a term there, hybrid publishing. Can you explain what that might be? Yeah, so hybrid publishing is actually somewhere between self and traditional. So they are, they, they act as a publisher in that they accept or reject manuscripts and then they have the editors that they work with to put it through the traditional publishing process. But it's hybrid in the sense that the author oftentimes will foot most of the investment, uh, which is not so in traditional. So in a traditional publishing setting, the publisher is taking on all the financial risk for producing this book. And so the author won't pay anything up front, but whatever advance they get is paid back by what the book makes after the fact. And once their advance is paid back, then the author starts starts making money on their book. In a hybrid situation, you've put a bit of your own capital toward this process. And so you will start to see returns on your investment faster than a traditional publishing model. And you also get sort of the, the boost of saying, I was published by mm-hmm. such and such a press. Yeah, so, it's a yeah. thing that's sort of just now becoming known or becoming a thing. So I think a lot of especially people who are looking to go into self publishing, those types of writers are going to have questions about that kind of thing. Because most self publishing writers will have heard about vanity presses, Mm -hmm. and other sort of schemey sounding things where you pay up front and they claim that they've published you but really, 
it hasn't gone through much editing. So maybe the product isn't as great or they don't actually publish your book because it was a scam. Mm. So I think a lot of, especially self-published writers are hesitant about new companies that are providing new services, Mm -hmm. but hybrid publishing, if you've done your research and they get good reviews, I feel like it's really potentially the best of both worlds. One of the things that you talk about is key areas to concentrate on during manuscript revision. Can you tell us about that? (laughs) Yes, I absolutely can. So I actually have a full-blown email course that I really go into depth about these areas, but I've identified the four main structural areas that you want to focus on while you're revising. And four doesn't sound like a lot. It's a deceptively small number. (laughs) But then when I tell you what these things are, you realize that these four elements will actually require you to go through your manuscript any number of times in order to actually fully evaluate all of them. So the first one is point of view and tense. Mm -hmm. And of course, by that, I'm talking about third person, first person, past tense, present tense, all that good stuff. When I talk about evaluating that, I mean evaluating it for its effect on your reader. So a third person point of view affords a writer a lot of freedom, but it also creates distance between the reader and the character. It's important for a writer to evaluate whether or not that distance is good for the story or if it's something that you're going to need to work against as you go. Same with past and present tense. So the most natural way of telling a story is in past tense. You know, the things have happened and I'm telling you the story now. And a lot of readers expect that when they pick up a book. So first of all, choosing present tense can be really jarring. I think it's gaining popularity now, but I think the first full-length book that I ever read that was fully in present tense was The Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. That's and exactly what I was thinking. I was like, oh, The Hunger Games. Yeah. And so that one, like, it really got my attention right off the bat. I was like, oh, this is different. But the other thing that it does is it creates a sense of urgency. Mm. So while I was reading The Hunger Games, I didn't want to put it down as often as I put down (laughs) other books because the story is happening, you know? (laughs) That's awesome. So that's something to consider about whether or not the point of view that you've chosen is creating more problems for you than solutions. And then the same with the tense. And then also how those things in combination are going to affect your reader. Uh, The second element is character development. And by that, I, of course, mean your character arcs. Are they following one or some combination of the traditional ones? Are you hitting all of the beats Mm -hmm. of those arcs? Is Is the traditional structure there? And then are you going to play with it at all once it is? And then the third element is plot structure, which very similar to character development. Are you following a three-act structure or some other non-traditional structure? Um, Are you hitting all the major beats? How are you tweaking things and making them new and showing the reader something they've never experienced before? And then the last one is word choice, which is also known as line editing, which is basically just going through and making sure that you're using the best words. That is awesome. And you are absolutely right. Four things did not sound like it would be many, but that is a whole, I feel like there is just a whole wealth of information there. You said that this uh, information was available in an email course that you offer? Yeah, actually. um, You can access that on my website, which is uh, whynotedit.com. 
down at the bottom, I think, actually, I have a link to my, I call it my DIY developmental editing email course. Um, so it's sort of meant to introduce you to these ideas, give you some in-depth information about them to give you an idea of how much goes into <laughs> thinking like a developmental editor. What's your favorite thing about developmental editing? Oh, goodness. I think it's really just that I get to read and use my imagination all day. So I take on one client at a time because when I am in a manuscript in a developmental edit, I am in it. Hmm. I'm thinking about it when I'm doing the dishes. I'm thinking about it while I'm walking my dog. Like It's more than just when I'm sitting down actually in front of the manuscript. And so I think it's just being fully engaged with storytelling is what makes me so passionate about this. I love that. And I can hear how passionate about it you are in your voice. And it just it comes through. So that is really, really great. So you spend a lot of time working on other stories. Do you do you write yourself as well? I do. I have a work in progress that I've been plugging away on for a couple of years now. It's a horror story, but it's got some serious thematic elements to it. I'm exploring some you know, good and evil and some, you know, religion. Um, I'm pretty excited about it. The 30-second elevator pitch is uh, demon nuns. So <laughs> You can't see my face right now, but this is the face of someone who wants to buy 600 copies of your book. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, so as you've progressed in your career as a developmental <laughs> editor, has that changed how you write? Yes, actually. So I started off this work in progress as a firm and dedicated pantser. So <laughs> someone who just sits down, writes by the seat of your of her pants. But since working as a developmental editor, I've seen the benefits of pre-planning. And actually, a lot of the times something I'll suggest to writers when they've gotten to the end of a draft and they're like, okay, what do I have here? I tell them, like, even after the fact, make an outline mm -hmm. so that you can see what you have what's there. And so um, I actually, I got a little stuck in my work in progress because I had accidentally skipped over a plot point that I meant to include because I hadn't written down what I had planned uh -huh. anywhere. And so I wrote myself into this weird corner that I was like, how did I get here? And I'm not super interested in this and I don't know what <laughs> happened. And so I stopped and I sort of rewound things and I have since like done some outlining and some organizational things. And I think I'm back on track. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that. I didn't laugh earlier at you. I laughed with you because I yes. have done and experienced exactly the same thing. I am also a pantser. Awesomely mm -hmm. enough, I'm also writing a horror novel. <clears throat> um, it is my like favorite kind to write. But yeah. I, I've also realized as I've gone and I've been also working on mine for a couple of years, the value of being an organized person. So I just, I really like that. That resonated with me so much. I started off just rebelling against being organized in creativity. And now I'm enjoying sort of the the paradoxical effect there. So yeah, it, it frees up your brain in some perhaps unexpected ways. Like it sounds like if you create an outline, you're fencing yourself in in some way. But really, I feel like it means that when I open up my document, I can just go to whichever scene is speaking to me because I know where everything else is headed. So now I just need to work on what needs working on and, you know, I can choose. And honestly, I think that the, your use <coughs> of the word work there, I think, says a lot too. And that's the other thing that I've learned is that writing can be very tedious work sometimes. 
Another thing that you've talked about, and you kind of touched on this with point number two in your four different areas that you look at, is character development. And that's Mm -hmm. something that I'm really interested in because you talk a little bit about mindful character development. And before we talk about mindful character development, I would like to ask you just what makes for good character development in the first place? So good character development. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that good character development is when your character feels real. Mm -hmm. So I know when I've encountered a good character, when I start talking about them as if they are a person that I have met. (laughs) So like, I'm totally that person who if you get me talking about one of my favorite TV shows, I have (laughs) thoughts. So if I have those same thoughts about the characters in a manuscript I'm working on, I know that the writer has hit the nail on the head because this person feels real. And it's difficult because that's such a subjective thing and it can be so frustrating because there are times where a character feels very real to one person and then not so real to another. So it's really just kind of a gut feeling. But I mean, the best advice I can give for a writer is to think of your characters as real. So think of them as people in your life. Have conversations with them like it sounds insane, but like but we're writers and we're insane already. So exactly. Like engage with the voices in your head. Yes. See what happens. They love you. Yes. That's awesome. So tell me a little bit more about mindful character development. Yeah. So when I say mindful character development or when I talk about that, I'm talking about creating diverse characters, which is another issue that has risen to the top in publishing lately. So even if you are not yourself from a marginalized group, you can still include them in the stories you're telling. Because like I said earlier, we want the stories we're telling and engaging with to reflect the world we want to live in. And so if your world includes people that are different from you, then your stories should. Being mindful about those choices, though, means making sure that you're not putting them in there because it feels like well, I just need one of these characters and there's nothing different about them than all the other white characters. They're just not white. So being mindful about those choices means taking into consideration the experience of this person that you're including in your book. So exactly like I said about the other character development, like have conversations with this character that you're developing, have conversations with people like the character that you're developing. (laughs) Just make sure that you are creating and representing a whole and complete person. Absolutely. One thing that continues to strike me, even as I continue podcasting about writing, is just the emphasis with everyone I speak to about the importance of communicating with other people. And I I know that writing is a form of communication, but we tend to think of it as this like solitary locked in your room with the door shut kind of thing. But there's, I feel this like deeply social aspect to it as well. Yes, absolutely. I mean, If you're writing with the intention of sharing this writing with the world, you're saying something to them. You're saying something to your readers. And so I think it's absolutely important to consider what you're saying and if you meant to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, definitely. And speaking of being a writer, tell me a little bit about the writing mindset. I know that's a little bit of a jump, but I think it's also something else that you uh, were interested in talking about. With that, I think I was talking about... um, like writerly anxieties and that kind of thing. Yes, yes. Imposter syndrome. Yes, it's definitely something that comes up when I'm coaching people a lot. 
Um, so my premium package includes a two month revision coaching engagement with me in which I help the writer work through the changes we've decided they're going to make. Part of that process is encouraging them along the way that yes, you are making improvements, you are making progress, this is moving in the right direction. And then also, strangely enough, encouraging them to come to me whenever they need to, Mm. which is kind of interesting, because I feel like with writers, we feel like, like you said, maybe we're going this on our own, like this is my thing, I need to sit over here and I can't ask for help because <laughs> I need to figure this out. And I don't think that's true. And then the imposter syndrome thing, I, I don't know if there's a writer out there who's never had that moment of like, <laughs> who do I think I am to try and tell this story or to think that I'm a writer at all? I really like to discourage people from using the term real writer. And I'm using air quotes here Good. because it really makes me... It makes me bristle when I see things like that. You know, there's quotes on Pinterest that say real writers, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, wow, but what is, what's a fake writer? <laughs> I don't. Does that exist? Yeah. Like if you're writing, you're a writer. So just say it loud and say it proud. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes, absolutely. And that is a, that is 100 percent what this show is about. So thank you for saying that. This has been a blast. I love talking with you. You have so many insights. Uh, I even learned what hybrid publishing was. So thank you for sharing that with us. How can people get in touch with you? How can people get a hold of you? You mentioned your website and email course earlier, but just give us the whole works of how people can connect with you and maybe work with you. Yeah. So first of all, this has been my pleasure as well. The feeling is completely mutual. I'm having a blast chatting with you. As far as getting in touch with me, I am Why Not Edit, which is W-H-Y-N-O-T-T, Edit, all over the internet. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I think that's where the list ends. <laughs> <laughs> and then I am also my website, whynotedit.com. I blog there. I post once a week. You can also sign up for my newsletter there, which is actually the best way to keep in touch with me. Um, I send those out also once a week with a you know, here's the new blog post and also some more extra bonus special content for my subscribers. And yeah, I think those are the best places to get a hold of me. I'll make sure that there are links to all of those and more in the show notes for today's episode. And Megan, until next time, thank you for your wisdom and your willingness to share your insider knowledge and insights with us. This has really been a treat. My pleasure. <laughs> 